Hello, friends and neighbors. This is David Smith from Illinois Family Action with a special edition for our Spotlight podcast. Recently, I gave the Father's Day morning message at my church, and since we captured the audio, I thought we could post it as a special edition for those who may be interested. In this sermon, we examine the story of Jairus, who came to Jesus crying out for help for a very sick child. There are many lessons we can learn from this wonderful story of a father's desperate appeal. Yes, this message is directed at fathers and grandfathers, but Jairus' example serves to instruct all who have ears to hear and eyes to see. Of course, reading it in the scripture. So, without further delay, here is the exhortation. Good morning, everyone. Good to see everyone here. Uh, Happy Father's Day. To all the fathers in the room, uh, one of the best parts, I just who loves being a father? I love being a father. It is fantastic, right? One of the best parts is being able to tell dad jokes, right? And how do you know a dad joke? Is it the laughter or the groan factor, right? right? Which is it? It's, it's the groan factor, right, Scott? You know that well, don't you? You know, like, you know, why don't eggs tell jokes? Well, because they'd crack each other up. Groan, come on, come on, groan. <laughs> Why are elevator jokes so classic and good? Because they work on many levels. Oh, come on, groan. I, all right, and I know a lot of jokes about retired people, but, you know, none of them work, so. All right. It is a blessing to be a dad, and I love to gr- make my kids groan with those dad jokes. Let's get serious, though. Uh, Today's message um, is titled, A Father's Desperate Appeal. Um, And it's a story about a synagogue official named Jairus. And if I make a mistake and called him Jairus instead, because initially, until I looked up how to pronounce it, I was calling him Jairus. And then I looked it up and said, oh, it's Jairus. So I'm going to have to try to remember Jairus throughout this message. But um, the text of the message comes from Matthew chapter 9, and it's 18 through 26. Let's read and then pray. So it starts off, while he, that's Jesus, was saying these things to them, that's the disciples, behold, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will become alive again. Jesus got up from the table and began to accompany him along with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the border of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if I just touch his cloak, I will get well. But Jesus turning and seeing her said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her hand, by her hand, I'm sorry, and the girl got up. And this news spread throughout the land. And in fact, we have it today in our Bible to encourage us. It's still spreading. Amen? Let's pray. 
Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and how this good news is still spreading even today. We thank you for the privilege of gathering today on this Sunday morning. We thank you that your word is with us. We thank you that your spirit is with us. We thank you that we're free to gather together with one another to sing praises to your holy name. We thank you for being kind, a very kind, patient, loving, and merciful Father. There is none like you, and so we praise you. We commit this time and message to you, asking you to use it as you wish, to instruct us, to exhort us. We pray that you would do it through your word and through your spirit, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on this Father's Day, I'd like to look at this short story, a story of faith that is also found in Mark chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 8. Matthew gives us the most concise version of this story. What I want you to notice in verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 18 of chapter 9, uh, Matthew reports to us, he says, While Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, a synagogue ruler, and that's also translated ruler, uh, official ruler, came down and bowed before him and said, My daughter had just died, but come and lay your hands on her, and she will be, become alive again. And like we just read with the, the morning scripture with Lazarus, it, it apparently Jesus had compassion on this man and said, Okay. And he arose. What's, that's what Matthew says. Jesus arose and followed him. And so did his disciples. Now, there's an interruption in this story, verses 20 and 22, but the synagogue official story continues in verse 23, where it says, When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players in the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, Leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up, and this news spread throughout the land. What a miracle! What a Savior! Here in this passage of Scripture, we read about a father's desperate appeal for help. This father, crying out for help for his, only, for his son or daughter, we learn later that it is his only daughter, it's, it's, you know, it's certainly not new to God. I'm fairly certain that every father here this morning has made appeals to God for his divine intervention, help, healing, provision for one or more of your children. Some of those prayers may have been pretty desperate, too. This story is shared in greater detail in Mark chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 8. In both of those accounts, we learn that the father's name was Jairus. The accounts in Mark and Luke also reveal that Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. And I want you to think about that just for a moment. He oversaw the administration of the local synagogue in Capernaum. And as I understand it, his position was an elected position. He was a Jewish official, a highly respected man. He would, would have been someone who was very capable and, because of his position in the synagogue, probably very popular. This man, by the name of Jairus, wielded great power in the synagogue and worked closely with the religious leaders. After all, he was probably the one who oversee the administration of the synagogue, and he would have been responsible for determining who would teach and preach from the scrolls in the synagogue. 
In essence, when we look at Jairus, he was one of the most influential men in the community. And we learn from these gospel accounts that Jairus had a desperate need for help. You see, beyond his official title and responsibilities, Jairus was also a dad. He had a daughter at home and she was very sick. So we, we learn immediately here, reading this passage, that Jairus was also a man of strong love. He loved his daughter so much that he went to see Jesus. And by his actions, we also know that he was probably a man of courage. For Jairus to go to Jesus was a little bit more than taboo. He would be acting contrary to the religious opinions of the day. I doubt the Pharisees liked it very much. Yet Jairus went to Jesus. Say that five times fast, by the way. So Jairus went to Jesus. Out of desperation, he went against the establishment's prevailing opinion. He went against what he knew as the ruler of the synagogue. He ran to the only one who he believed could help him in this time of urgent need. So this is a wonderful story of a father's faith and his desperate appeal. But I want you to notice something else, too, about Jairus. In verse 18, Matthew tells us that while Jesus was saying these things to him, behold, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her, and she will become alive again. All right, the Mark, in Mark, it tells us, it one of the, and one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came upon, and upon seeing him, fell at his feet and pleaded with him earnestly. My daughter, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she would get well and live. Luke has a similar account and it's confirmed, confirming this story. It says, and, an, and a man named Jairus came and he was an official of the synagogue and he fell at Jesus' feet and began urging him to come to his house for he had a, an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. The first thing I want you to notice is how this ruler of the synagogue humbled himself and prostrated himself at, the, at Jesus' feet in desperation. Matthew simply says that Jesus bowed down before him. But Mark tells us that Jairus fell at his feet and pleaded with him earnestly. Luke also tells us that Jairus fell at his feet and began urging him to come at to his home. Jairus humbled himself at Jesus' feet and willingly abandoned his reputation. He may have never reached out to Jesus until this moment until he truly believed that Jesus could heal his very sick daughter. The storms were raging. The tides were crashing in. Things looked bleak. So Jairus ran to Jesus. His situation seemed hopeless. It was so hopeless that he even interrupted Jesus while Jesus was preaching and teaching. He didn't wait for Jesus to say amen or for the crowd to disperse. He didn't bother with etiquette. He went right to him, fell at his feet, and the scripture tells us, he did this while Jesus was speaking. Do you see his act of desperation? Do you recognize this dire appeal for help? 
Mark and Luke's Gospels tell us something else about Jairus' daughter. They tell us that this was his only daughter, and she was about 12 years old. And reading between the lines, we can assume that Jairus was beside himself with emotions. I know I would be. By approaching Jesus, Jairus was not simply risking his reputation. He was risking mockery and scorn. He risked censorship and hostility from his peers. And to be quite honest, he probably risked his official position. But he didn't seem to care, did he? I can't help but think of this passage in Luke, in chapter 9, that says, For what good does it do a person if he gains the whole world, but loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. So Jairus' need was immediate. What good does it do to be the ruler of the synagogue and lose your only daughter? As a father, his concern about his daughter's health and life surpassed everything else. And that is what good dads do. It's what God did for us in sending Jesus. He set aside the riches and glories of his seat at the right hand of the Father to take on the death penalty of our sins. He took them on himself and then he redeemed us and adopted us as sons and daughters. Good dads not only drop their own interest or lay aside every worldly interest for their children, but they make frequent and weighty appeals to heaven. They cry out to God for help. This is exactly what Jesus did for his disciples in John chapter 17. This is exactly what Jesus does for us today. He intercedes for us today. Hebrews 7. That is what Jairus did. Jairus' appeal and his desperate cry was not ignored by Jesus. In verse 19, we are told that Jesus got up from the table and began to accompany him along with his disciples. Notice, too, Jairus' act of worship. In the New King James Version, verse 18 is translated this way. While he spoke these things to, to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him. Didn't simply bow down. In the New King James Version, it's translated, worshipped him, saying, my daughter has just died. I don't know about you, but I think that falling at Jesus' feet was absolutely an act of worship. In today's culture, there are a plethora of reasons to make us, uh, to urge us to pray urgently and make urgent appeals to Jesus. And in doing so, we must humble ourselves. We need to fall down before Jesus and cry out for help, metaphorically speaking. No, your daughter isn't dying. You wouldn't be here if your daughter was dying today. But there are many lessons here in this passage for dads. Jesus responds immediately. Like last week's message on sorrowful confession, we can learn much from this father's cry. No, crying out to God does not mean that if we have all the right responses that God will give us exactly what we want. As Ben pointed out last week, God is not a vending machine. Last Sunday we examined James chapter 4 in which we are told that God resists the proud but he give, gives grace to the humble. In fact, we are warned 
in John chapter, or I'm sorry, James chapter 4. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend what you request on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with this world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says to no purpose, he jealously desires the spirit whom he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Oh, dear Lord, may we fathers better understand how important it is for us to humble ourselves in your sight. In fact, this imperative is for us all. Men, women, young people, humble yourselves in the sight of God. And the Bible tells us he will lift us up in due season. Now, our attitudes make a big difference here. I'm big on attitude. Now, it doesn't mean I always get it right. Right, kids? <laughs> but I recognize <clears throat> that attitude is so incredibly important because it's a major part of how we think on things and respond to each other. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, We are destroying arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So if we're instructed to take every thought captive, to make it obedient to Christ, that includes our sinful attitudes, right? Attitude is so exceptionally important because our attitudes determine our actions. So if you're a glass-half-empty person, I want to encourage you to turn that attitude around and become a glass-half-full person. Right? We have, as Christians, we have every reason to be optimistic and to know the rest of the story. Can you imagine what Jairus would have done if he, he was a half glass, uh, half, glass half empty kind of person? If he had an attitude of defeat and hopelessness, he would have never gone to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 18, we find a discussion among the disciples. They all wanted to know who was going to be the greatest. Remember that story? Well, they asked Jesus, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he said, well, and he called a child to himself and set him, set him among them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you change and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So whoever will humble himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. All right, so Jesus couldn't make it more clear for us. He, didn't make, he couldn't have made it more clear for the disciples. Jesus puts a, a child in the midst of them and says, hey, if you become like this child, if you don't become like this child, humble, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. So whoever, whoever will humble themselves like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, it was the same humility in respect, meekness, lowliness of mind that Jairus showed Jesus, towards Jesus. That this desperate man also sets a great example for God-fearing men and fathers today. So what about us, good Christian fathers? What's our attitude like? Are we men walking around oblivious to the conditions and needs of our children? 
Are we men who think we've got things under control? Do we think our ways of raising our kids are superior to that of everyone else? Well, if we are doing things better, smarter than everyone else, if we're doing things far better than the world and its very low standards, it's only because God looked upon our families with mercy and has given us that grace, that ability, or that wisdom to use for his honor and his glory. Don't call it Christian privilege. The Bible calls it a blessing. <clears throat> At this point, I want to take a few moments of personal privilege. <laughs> I want to do a sidebar here to today's message. It's important to point out that the physical illness of a child is just one good reason of many that require us to humble ourselves and cry out to Almighty God for help. There are dozens upon dozens of other reasons why we must be humbling ourselves before the throne of God, crying out for our children and for others. Scripture warns us in 1 John chapter 2, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but from, it is from the world. The world wants to lure our children away with false promises of power, fame, wealth, fashion, and offers them intoxicating substances, feelings, and experiences. In Matthew chapter 4, we read that the devil took Jesus on a temptation tour, right? And we read that the devil took him along to a very high mountain, that's Jesus, and showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, go away, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Think about that for a minute. All the kingdoms of the world and their glory? Has anyone in this world ever gotten such a bribe? <laughs> right? Ephesians 2, 2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. In John chapter 12, verse 31, Satan is called the ruler of this world. So when the Bible says that Satan is the god of this world, small g, it is not saying that he has ultimate authority. It's conveying the idea that Satan rules over the unbelieving world in a specific way. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we are told that the unbeliever blindly follows Satan's agenda. Here we go again. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God, small g, of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan's schemes includes promoting false philosophies in the world, philosophies that blind the unbeliever to the truth of the gospel. Satan's philosophies are the fortress in which people are imprisoned, and they must be set free by Jesus Christ. Now, born-again Christians are also warned by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2, verse 8. He says, see to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, 
in accordance with the elementary principles of the world rather than in accordance with Christ. Today, there are many aggressive voices demanding that we conform to the ways of the world. But that wasn't a problem for Jesus, right? He understood the temporal pleasures of this world are fleeting and cannot compare to the heavenly treasures of eternity, right? So dads, let's not deceive ourselves. Satan had the audacity to tempt the Son of God in the desert in various and obvious ways. Satan is going to tempt us, our wives and our children, in similar ways ways. Satan and his demons are busy trying to lure us and our family members away from the straight and narrow path that God has called us to. He doesn't want us to advance the kingdom of God. He doesn't want us to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. He doesn't want us to produce fruit of the spirit, have sweet fellowship with each other. He doesn't want us to live to shine the light of Jesus in our lives and in our homes. And he doesn't want us, our lives, to bring God glory and honor. Satan's goal is to discourage, distract, and even destroy human beings because they are image bearers of the Most High. And as Christians, we know that we are at war with this adversary. Brother Joe Denner, a couple weeks ago, gave us a message about putting on the armor. There's a reason we put on armor. We're in a battle. You know well that our culture is in open rebellion to God, and we are seeing the consequences of that foolishness. Suicides, overdoses, abortions, divorces, and broken families. Legalized drugs, sex addictions, human trafficking, drag queen story hours, racism, and anti-racism bigotry, lawlessness, riots, mysticism, pluralism, transgender bathrooms, and transgender athletes. These are some of the afflictions that war for our children's souls. These are just some of the afflictions that demand our urgent and frequent prayers. Why do I bring these things up? Well, because wicked ideologies are flooding the public square. They are infiltrating corporate America, Christian schools and seminaries, the medical establishment, media of every type, and of course, our government in our government schools. It's even percolating in the military. Dr. Al Mohler, in his daily podcast commentary, regularly suggests that there is a new religion in America. Dr. Everett Piper and historian Professor Niall Ferguson and Mark Tooley, president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy, have all made similar arguments recently. This, is, this new religion of wokeism, as they have phrased it, has been around for a while. But because of everything we've been through over the past 12 to 19 months, it is suddenly front and center in the public square as never before. Virtue singling, silencing, cancel culture, microaggressions, Black Lives Matter, critical theory, Critical race theory, critical uh, legal theory have exploded on the scene in prominent ways. And all of this, these things have one thing in common, one common denominator, and that's religious zeal. It exudes an air of confidence 
that boldly asserts that they are right and everyone else is wrong. The adherents of wokeism are even using religious language overtly. Joe Biden declared the Pulse nightclub hallowed ground on June 12th of this year, the five-year anniversary of an Islamic terrorist attack on this LGBT bar. You've heard it said that nature abhors a vacuum, right? In physics, we learn that vacuums are always filled. This is true in religion and religious belief, too. When we create a vacuum, especially within human culture, the human mind and the human soul, it won't remain empty. It will always be filled by something. In fact, Jesus refers to this in the Gospel of Luke when he tells us, Luke chapter 11, verses 24 and 26, when the unclean spirit comes out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it then says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they come in and they live there. And the last condition of the person becomes worse than the first. Jesus is basically painting a picture of a vacuum. When a demon is cast out and the house swept clean, the demons will come back, and, and, and not just by himself, but with his demon friends. So that's what we're seeing in the culture right now. We're, seeing, we're sweeping the culture clean of Judeo-Christian values. We're watching history unfold in front of our eyes as agents of life, I'm sorry, agents of change, work overtime to dismantle the American way of life. Now, I want to just be honest and recognize and acknowledge our flaws. The United States is not without sin. As an example, the blood of innocent aborted babies cries out to God for justice. No, we haven't lived up to the ideals spelled out in the Declaration of Independence. The right to life is a phrase prominent in that document. And if you know our history, you know the slave trade was a contentious point among the delegates at the Continental Congress in 1774. So yes, we fall short of the ideals. We fought a civil war in the 1860s to correct slavery. We had marches for civil rights in the 1960s to address racism. And to this day, we continue to try to reach for those higher ideals and an end to legal abortion. So, fathers, do we understand the times? Do we know how to respond to these things? I believe that the rise of the religion of wokeism in our culture is a very important reason why we need to humble ourselves and cry out on behalf of our children. The rebellious culture wants to sweep the house clean of everything. Well, when you sweep the house clean of all that was in it, the good and the bad and the bad and the good, what happens? Well, we talked about the vacuum. We're not going to be religious less. We're going to be religious. But as Dr. Piper says, that new religion is uncommonly cruel. Now, Max Funk wrote an article last year titled, Wokeism, the New Religion of the West. He says this, Wokeism is a religion. Although it has not been organized in any formal religious structure, 
It has all the functions of religious doctrine. It has a unique epistemology, an evaluation of the human condition, and it has a redemptive narrative. In other words, this new religion has an explanation for the human condition. Mr. Funk even points out that it has a redemptive narrative. So how do you redeem humanity from all its ills? Marxism, communism, the social collective. You de deconstruct the old and replace it with the new. Right? Wokeism as a religion has all the components of religious zeal. It not only tells us what's wrong with us, but what to do about it. Does that sound familiar? This is exactly what Chuck Colson told us every worldview does. Colson rightly points out that any worldview must address the following questions. Where did we come from? Who are we? What has gone wrong with the world? What can we do to fix it? Wokeism has a worldview, a unique epistemology, a unique ontology, a unique teleology, and a unique theology. It has a redemptive narrative. It tells us how to fix the problem. When you replace God with another set of contrived assumptions and truth claims, that becomes your religion. A culture in the grip of woke religion doesn't like the Judeo-Christian ethic. Its worldview runs contrary to a biblical worldview. It not only sweeps the house clean, but it invites demons and the demons and his friends to return. This new religion is very dangerous. My, Max Funk points out that wokeism offers everything that secularism failed to provide. It has quickly filled the God-shaped hole that we created in our culture. That's an important quote. Now, Dr. Everett Piper is fond of saying in these times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. The only thing that will save us from this lie is truth with a capital T. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the truth, capital T, and the life, capital L. So fathers, are we equipping our children to know, live, and love the truth? Are we impressing upon them for a, a love of God and his word? Are we crying out desperately on behalf of our children, asking God to protect them from the deceptions, snares, slings, and arrows of the father of lies? Are we daily, daily appealing to God to protect their hearts, minds, and souls from the ways of this world? That kind of ends my sidebar but I hope it jives with the rest of the message. I want you to hear me on this. We must be willing to humble ourselves enough to come to the only one who can heal us, who can heal our family, who can heal our friends, who can heal the church in Chicago, who can heal this state, and who can heal this nation. His name is Jesus. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He is our Savior and adopted Father. He is unwilling that any should perish, and according to 2 Peter 3.9, he wants all to come to him. 2 Peter says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
Do we believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus can heal your need and cleanse you from all unrighteousness? Do you believe Jesus can heal this country? I believe he can. Now, the situation for Jairus seemed hopeless. Yet his attitude was of worship. And when he made his request in 18, he simply said, Just come and lay your hand on her and she will be alive again. This simple story surrounding Jairus' request exhorts us to be ready in all humility to cry out to Jesus, to ask him to do what only he can do. In James 5, we read this. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. A prayer of a righteous person, when it is brought about, can accomplish much. The Bible tells us that the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise them up and sins will be forgiven. In James 5.16, we are reminded that confession of sin is vitally important and that fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Yes, we see the hopeless situation. We see that Jairus' attitude of humility, faith, and worship. And we see his request is short and simple. Why is that important? Well, James 4.3 admonishes us for praying with the wrong motives. I think it's fair to conclude that Jairus had the proper motives. If you read the account of Jairus in Mark chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 8, you'll see that a messenger came from Jairus' house to relay the news of his daughter's death, saying, leave the master alone, your daughter's already dead. But Jesus actually used the messenger that came to discourage Jairus as a way to bolster his faith. Jesus told Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe. It was faith that drove Jairus to worship Jesus' feet. It was faith that compelled Jairus to cry out to the master on behalf of his daughter. It was Jairus' faith that provided him with the right motive and an attitude of humility. And then you notice, as Paul Harvey would say, I think I've used that twice today, the rest of the story. Back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 25. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered in, that's Jesus, and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Notice, the Bible says he took her by the hand, and the girl, what does it say? She got up. Praise the Lord. She was raised from the dead. He went in. He took her by the hand, and she arose. Mark's account of this incident, Jesus says, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Luke's records what Jesus' words were as, Child, arise. Now, why would he do that? Why would he take a dead girl's hand in his own? Wouldn't that make him ceremonially unclean? Why would she get up? It's very simple. Because of father's desperate appeal and because of a father's faith. Oh, and 
Because Jesus, Lord of Lords, told her to. Right? So dads, and quite honestly, anyone in this room, I want to encourage you. It's too important. We simply cannot fail to immerse ourselves and our family in the word of God. We are living in wicked and deceitful times. It is, best, it is, it is the best way to become equipped and ready to prepare our children to do spiritual battle against an aggressive and angry adversary and a culture devoted to wokeism. As Christians, we have no reason to cry out in fear, yet it is high time that we start crying out in faith. As we double or maybe even triple down on our efforts to disciple our children in the word of God, may he give us opportunities to tell other people about the love and mercy of the God we serve. He is all we need. He is what the world needs. He alone can protect our children physically, emotionally, intellectually. He is the one who can draw him, them to himself. He can use our children in small and great ways to advance the kingdom. Brothers, I don't think any of us here are facing a situation at home that is as dire as this. Still, I want to encourage you and myself. This was a very important message for me to learn. We must go to Jesus regularly and not be afraid to cry out. Cry out. Go to him at times alone so we can weep aloud. At times with our wives, yes, and at times with our children. Go to Jesus frequently throughout the day. Jairus persisted even after the messengers came and said, It's over, bro. Your daughter's gone. She's gone. Don't bother the rabbi. It's over. Jesus simply said, don't be afraid. Fear not. Keep on believing. The rituals and busyness of his religious responsibilities didn't get in Jairus' way. So the exhortation here to myself, to fathers, grandfathers, and anyone who has an ear to hear. When we are blindsided with troubling news, when we see the apostles of wokeism, pushing the religion on kindergartners in government schools and during library story times, when we hear of rising abortion rates in our state or learn about the evils of human trafficking, we must recognize that the times are desperate. Our response to such desperate times should be to prostrate ourselves, prostrate ourselves at Jesus' feet and cry out to him for help, strength, wisdom, courage, and healing. We should fervently pray that God will help us to equip our children and grandchildren to live in a postmodern Babylonian culture. Pray that he will give them wisdom and discernment to identify Satan's snares. Pray that God will help them see clearly the false religion of wokeism. We have to faithfully pray and then pray with faith that God will use our children and grandchildren to build the kingdom. Now, in his book, The Church in Babylon, Dr. Lutzer asks and then answers a vital question, one which you may be asking right now. How do you raise children in a pagan environment? Dr. Lutzer explains how the Bible gives us the template. He says this, In Judaism, 
There were strong fathers who took responsibilities for the home. The father led his family in the Passover rituals. Fathers were charged with teaching children the word of God. And they knew, and God knew, that with strong fathers grounded in the word of God, these families could survive paganism. With strong families, God would have future seed, and the message of his gospel would flourish. Amen. Yet Dr. Lutzard warns that there is a cost to living authentic lives of holiness in a godly culture. Thankfully, God's word exhorts us to consider the cost with the proper perspective. And that's found in Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So, we need to pray that God would give our children and grandchildren thick skin, boldness, and strength to stand. Again, Dr. Lutzer points out that faithfulness to to our calling should be our overriding passion. And he rightly points out, the God who calls is the God who provides. God gave Jeremiah all the gifts and strengths he needed to face the opposition of his culture. And our Heavenly Father does the same for us. Amen. The God who calls is the God who provides. So in short, we must be We must cry out to God for our own faithfulness that we as fathers and grandfathers will diligently teach our faith to those whom God has entrusted to us according to his word in order that our children and grandchildren will be prepared to face the future. But there will be times when all we can do is pray. And so we can pray. We can pray as the Apostle Paul prayed that Jesus Christ would be made so real in the lives of our children and grandchildren and his love for them made so real that they would submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives. We can ask God to make it known to our children and our grandchildren what it really means to have the Holy Spirit dwell in their hearts and minds, giving them discernment. We can pray that our children and grandchildren would work out their faith with fear and trembling. We can pray that our children and grandchildren would take full advantage of God's provisions to accomplish the calling in their lives. We can pray that they learn good stewardship of their time, treasures, and talents. We can pray that our children and grandchildren will have hearts to obey the Lord and be involved in the things of God even after we've launched them into the world. We can pray that they fear that they fear the I'm sorry. We can pray that the they fear I wrote this wrong. We can pray that the fear of man will have no sway over them and that they will exhibit a deep reverence of the Lord. We can pray that our children and grandchildren will be able to discern what doors God has opened for them and find the good works that God has prepared for them in advance. We can pray that our children and grandchildren will exercise the spiritual gifts for the glory of God and for the good of others. May they do nothing out of selfish ambition and always consider themselves better than, um, and always consider others better than themselves. We can pray that our children and grandchildren will have spouses that were raised in true Christian homes and are dedicated to living to Christ 
and are willing to die to self. We can pray that their marriages will be fruitful, bringing glory and honor to God. May they be grateful for each other, content with their possessions, and joyful in the journey. We can pray that our children and grandchildren will overcome the world's selfish views on life and have a profound understanding of what it means to trust the Lord. We can pray that our children and grandchildren will seek to obey his word, precepts, and commands as they live and serve God and neighbor. Finally, we can pray for ourselves and our attitudes that we would clearly see God's purpose for our lives and that of our children and grandchildren. God's vision for our children and grandchildren must align with God's view. Our view of, of our children and grandchildren must align with God's view, His view. So may God help us to guide and encourage our children as they prepare for the days and years ahead. And encourage our children as they prepare for the, for, um, the battle. Not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual hosts of wickedness. This is a battle we don't want to send our children into without earnest appeals to God Almighty and intercessory prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the challenges and the opportunities you give us. Thank you for this story of Jairus. Thank you for providing the helper to give us the strength, stamina, and courage to do what you've called us to do. We, Lord, we resolve to be more like you, and we are learning to exhibit your thoughts and attributes in our lives. We ask that as we go from here today that the Holy Spirit would bless us, strengthen us, and remind us of Jairus's, I'm sorry, Jairus's humility, his worship, and his faith-filled appeals. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.